0: This episode was brought to you by ReadyMag. ReadyMag is a design tool for creating outstanding websites without coding, from quick landing pages to complex editorials. With advanced animations, more than 5,000 free fonts, plus teamwork and analytics, ReadyMag empowers both independent creatives and companies to meet their goals for online representation. For more information, visit readymag.com, where you'll find inspiring examples of web projects made by ReadyMag users.
1: Going to Spin Magazine after GQ was intentional. I took a salary cut pretty big one and in terms of prestige my mother was like what the fuck is spin magazine but it was the best career move i ever made because everything that i wanted to do creatively saya gave me the freedom and the autonomy to do that and that's what got me to the new york times janet Frolick liked what we were doing at spin magazine and called me
2: this is print is dead long live print a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Nicole Dyer.
0: I'm Patrick Mitchell. Where do magazine designers go after all the magazines are gone? That's a question we've often pondered in recent years. Well, if you've been paying close attention, you'd probably guess, as it turns out, a lot of them go to Cupertino, and much of this migration can be traced to 2014, when today's guest... AIGA medalist and Emmy Award-winning creative director Aram DuPlessis left his storied job at the New York Times Magazine to go to work at Apple. You might be asking yourself, why would one of America's most high-profile magazine designers leave a coveted job at an iconic publication, one that brought him global recognition, countless awards and deep creative satisfaction for a famously secretive company known, well, for locking away its talent? in a vault of non-disclosure agreements. But the better question might be, why wouldn't he? Duplessis is arguably one of the most influential creative directors of his time. His ten years of covers for the New York Times Magazine shaped its vision and identity. As creative director at GQ, he helped create the now ubiquitous Gotham family of fonts. And he's blazed the trail for print designers in search of digital futures. While the departure of big-name magazine designers like Duplessis to Silicon Valley may strike fear in some, it reaffirms what many of us have long known. Despite years of slumping newsstand sales and magazine closures, the all-purpose skills of elite creative directors are still very much in demand. As former ESPN creative director Neil Jamison said, why wouldn't Apple be hiring magazine designers? No other category of designer is more multifaceted. Beyond the fundamentals, they do branding, packaging, identity, storytelling. They have experience on set with video, social, and short form storytelling. There's no question there's a dire need in the corporate world for these kinds of skills. The question that remains unanswered so far is can that kind of digital work ever deliver the same creative fulfillment that magazines do? We talked to DuPlessis about learning to scuba dive in his dad's Virginia Quarry, the modeling career that wasn't, cutting his teeth at the controversial hip-hop magazine Blaze, adapting to life on the West Coast, and what he's planning for life after work. Let's meet Rem. Let me start by saying that I predate you by a bit, and by that I mean I worked on magazines before computers. Mm Mm-hmm. So given that, Steve Jobs and Apple are almost godlike in the effect that they've had on our business. And because of that, most art directors I know are total Apple nerds. We watch every keynote, we buy all the products, we cried when Steve died. So in the eyes of many of us in 2014, you basically moved to heaven or the Garden of Eden, however you want to think (laughs) about it. But I am wondering, did you have a similar sort of spiritual relationship with Apple? And if so, Did that play any kind of role in your decision making process that led you there? Was it purely about creativity and career or was the Apple mystique part of it too?
1: Well, like you mentioned and so many others, it was a part of my, you know, it's equivalent to Foreman and his hammer. Those were the tools of the trade. When I got into the business, I did start out on a Mac and it was a big part of, of what I did. And I quickly became a fan of Apple and an Apple nerd for sure and needed every product, wanted every product as it was announced. And that excitement, you know, it continues to this day. I'm still a huge fan. Deciding to come to Apple was definitely centered around, I think Steve's messaging around Apple being a design company and yeah, design being at the forefront and design being so important to the company's mission. It just seemed like that was the North Star of Apple from the beginning Yes, yeah. design and good design. So for me, that was extremely appealing and, and it made sense You know, once I decided to transition out of the magazine world.
0: I saw this quote, an unnamed magazine editor said, I think some designers are enamored with the notion of working for Apple, but once you get there, you become anonymous. The magazine business is really the only place where designers get credited publicly. Do you miss seeing your name out there, getting credit for all that amazing work?
1: No. I think that the thing about magazines in general, And it's not just Apple, it's really magazines. You know, there's a masthead. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's literally a place where you can go and see who the creative director is, who the director of photography is, editor and contributing writers. It's all right there in front of you. There's no other brand, really, no other platform that does that. So I don't miss it. I don't miss getting any credit for the work that I do because it was definitely a team effort. I hired some really good people. That was the magazine business. That was very much a part of the magazine business, but also it was a unique thing about the magazine business to have that kind of baby that you literally have your name on and your team's name on and you get all this credit for it or blame when it's not so good too. So no, I don't miss that. I got into this business because I had a love and fondness for design. And I've always felt blessed, and I'm not bullshitting, I'm serious. I've always felt blessed that I've been able to work in this field. And when I first started out, I went to a school that had a really small design department. I think there were like four of us that graduated. So for me, I just wanted a job in design. That was my goal. It wasn't to win awards and have my name on a magazine and anything close to that.
3: Do you miss those collaborations? Are you able to maintain the collaborations or is it mostly internal collaborations at this point?
1: No, I'm still able to collaborate with creators from not only internally, but externally too. So I I still have that, which is great. I definitely enjoy that part of the job.
0: Apple has come up and I don't know if you've listened to any of our previous episodes, but it's come up a few times. Everyone's talking about how Apple keeps hiring all these magazine people. Mm -hmm. And I know you can't divulge anything about what goes on there, but what is it about magazine thinking that makes magazine makers so appealing, not just to Apple, but to other sort of non-magazine companies?
1: Looking back on it, and, and I didn't have this perspective while I was in magazines, it got to a point where I felt in many ways that I was becoming obsolete toward the end, you know, or magazines were becoming obsolete, at least in the way that I kind of came of age with them. So for me, it was... I was nervous about being able to tell my story as a magazine creative to these other brands. You know, I was in magazines my whole career. So I quickly learned that what I perceived as a weakness was actually a real strength. Because if you look at the creation of a magazine, when you work for an agency or even a design firm to a certain degree, you're not assigning illustration. You're not working with photographers. You're not working with maybe fine artists. You're not working with writers on projects in the way you do at a magazine. At the New York Times, that happened for me 52 times a year. It was weekly. So I was able to collaborate with some of the most amazing people. I was able to get in and refine type and be a design nerd in that way. I was able to articulate art direction and go on sets and lead shoots. It's very rare that you have all of that in one place and still get your hands dirty in design. I was able to do all of that. I still designed magazine covers and feature spreads even even as the lead.
0: That's interesting because... I think you're right. I think a lot of us feel like, I think it's changing now, but I think we probably felt like we would have had to apologize for our background to get people thinking we can do jobs outside of the magazine business. But I think what has happened is the outside world has realized what kind of thinking goes into magazines and realized the affection people have, the relationship they have to these storytelling objects.
1: Yeah, to be able to tell. Yeah, exactly. To be able to tell narratives. Well, I mean, honestly, what I learned was that it's not like that happened in 2014 when I started at Apple, where all of a sudden there was this kind of epiphany of hey, magazine people actually do have something to offer. That was just those were my insecurities, but in reality, coming from the magazine world was a big deal. You know, people wanted to know about it. That was exciting. Most of the people that I work with are from design firms or from agencies, so. At the time, when I started, there weren't, any, there weren't too many magazine people coming into Apple, so people were intrigued by it and they were fascinated by it and, and they were very respectful of it. What I quickly learned is the amount of work that we do that we put into a magazine and the collaborations that we have, it really allowed us to be able to tell a really strong narrative. Being able to tell a really strong narrative. And what we do, our job is to communicate. So that applies to anything, any brand that you work for outside of the magazine world. If you can tell a strong narrative, if you're really good at telling a story visually and directing that mission, there's a lot of value there.
2: We'll be right back. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. At the New York Times Magazine, you must have been thinking
3: about digital outputs. So at what point do you stop thinking of yourself as a magazine designer when you're thinking about all of these digital strategies, and way to extend the content beyond the printed page. So you must have been doing that already.
1: Yeah, I was. I was. That's when I decided, and I loved it. I mean, I loved being at the New York Times, and I obviously loved being a part of the magazine world, but I was still relatively young at the time. And I just felt like, what does my career look like, I guess, at that point, maybe halfway through my career? Do I want to continue doing this and transition into someone who's leading digital work? because I love the smell of print. I mean, opening up that box of fresh magazines and you smell that, I still love that. But if that's going away, then does it make sense for me and my career to stay in that world versus trying out something new? And then having an opportunity to try out something new at a brand like Apple, at a company like Apple, it just made perfect sense.
3: I've been thinking a lot about the way in which young designers now think about design given the dramatic shifts you know, to digital platforms and the decline of magazines and wondering what jobs they actually aspire to, what would be the pinnacle for a young designer? Would they aspire to work at Rolling Stones or the New York Times Magazine? And does it matter if your design never materializes on paper?
1: I don't know if that matters to them because they really didn't have that option. Coming out of school now in 2022, Not too many people are saying, hey, you should go work for Rolling Stone. It's just a different world. But I think there are more opportunities for designers than ever before. There are way more jobs now for designers than there were when I was coming out of school. I mean, I went to Pratt Institute, graduated from there in 1996 for graduate school. And you had choices. You had a design firm, you had an ad agency, or you had magazines for the most part. Of course, there are other things you could do within brands. But that's where most of my contemporaries that I graduated with, they wanted to work for the big design firms for the most part. That was the big thing, working for Pentagram or a big design firm like that. And then if you were in the magazine world, you wanted to go work for Fred and then Rolling Stone. I think now designers have a lot more choices. But in terms of doing the interesting, fun kind of design, I don't know if they're leaning toward many companies in tech. I mean, I, I think Apple still offers a lot of variety for sure. But other companies, they pretty much are traditionally digital. So designers still probably lean toward, hey, I'm going to go work for this design firm. A lot of younger people now I'm seeing have the entrepreneurial spirit. So they're starting their own agencies right away. I think it just depends on what kind of person you are. I do think and I do see still a lot of respect and value and aspirations around print. For young designers too, they want to do zines, they want to do anything in print. They still think it's cool, they think it's fun, but they just view it in a different way than I did. For me, print was pretty much all we had for the most part. Versus now, it's kind of like vinyl. They think of it as a cool vintage kind of project.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it's it was a career, and now it's a project.
1: And now it's a, yeah, now it's a cool little side project, but. You know, if you go work for a an ad agency and they have a variety of clients, you know, you're still doing some cool work. If you work for a good agency, they may be doing movie posters, they may be doing things that still involve print, but it's just a broader world now for design. The
0: magazine business is super tough with deadlines and on a weekly, even deadlier. Has moving to the corporate world had a positive effect on your lifestyle? And in what ways? What does the Cali lifestyle meant for you personally?
1: Well, coming from a weekly you know 52 times a year that was pretty brutal i loved it but the hours were completely insane but for the most part they were predictable because you know what the schedule is you know what the the closing schedule is and and unless the editor changes the cover story at the last minute which happens pretty much know your schedule moving to california i had to change my new york attitude. And I never really had a New York attitude. At least I didn't think I did until I moved to California. You know, in New York, people considered me pretty chill, but I move out here and people are like, hey, you need to relax, man. You're being a little aggressive. So I think California has been good for my patience level. I no longer sit at the grocery store like, you know, come on, hurry up. Why why are those fucking tomatoes taking so long to be put into the bag? I don't have that anxiety anymore that I did in New York. But in terms of my hours, it depends on what project I'm on. You know how it is in the creative world. I mean, I think that a lot of times we put those hours on ourselves because we want to reach a certain level of work. So when I'm working late, generally it's because I'm trying to push the envelope. Me and my team, we want to make something great and we're all in on it. But I don't believe in the creative space that there's such thing as a nine to five because we love what we do, you know? Yeah. Or I feel like you should love what you do if you're in this space, because most of my friends that are attorneys or in finance hate what they do. So if you have a job that you hate and you're a creative, I don't think that's a, a good combination. I think yeah. I'll strive to do better because for most people, this is a passion, you know, it's what we do is passion.
0: I mean, I imagine as you're saying that about weekly, you must have deadlines that are now half years, years, like real long term. No, that's not true. No, not at all. Turnaround is pretty quick.
1: Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're working on, but it's pretty quick. It's just different because sometimes there's just different components to it. The schedule isn't always as predictable as magazines.
0: I remember being at a cocktail party with a guy who was a civil engineer, and he said his project's typically 15 to 20 years. And I was thinking, imagine working on two projects your
1: entire life. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. But I mean, it, it all comes down to what you're used to and what foundation you started with.
3: You got to miss the energy of New York City, though.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, question. I definitely miss it. I miss it every time. Oddly enough, you know, when I first moved from New York, I think I had enough because I was commuting and I was taking my kids to school. It was a lot. It was a lot, you know, because I lived in Brooklyn. My son went to school on the Upper East Side. We didn't have the train running up the East Side. So it was a pain in the ass. And I remember just being squeezed on the subway every day and I just felt like a rat. I really felt like part of the rat race. So when I first moved to California, I didn't miss that at all. I still don't miss the cult. But recently, and I think COVID did this because I was forced to stay away from New York. Once I was able to travel again, I, I went back to New York City for the first time in, in I think 2020, like maybe late 2020. Or 21, I can't remember, but there was all of a sudden the nostalgia was there. Like I missed it tremendously. It was just, oh, New York, New York will always be there. And for now it's California for me. And what I love about California is I can jump in my car and in 20 minutes I'm I'm on the beach or I'm hiking somewhere and hiking somewhere where it's a destination for people from around the world, You know that kind of thing. That level of nature is amazing. And there's some really good restaurants here too. For me, the hard part about the Bay Area is the lack of diversity. I can walk down the street and not see a black person for like the whole day, which is a little odd. That's hard. That really is. But I like it. Love the weather. It's pretty consistent. And it doesn't get too hot here. It doesn't get too cold.
3: New York City, is a the street art's been amazing. And just <clears throat> as a creative person, you draw so much energy just from the environment because there's art everywhere. Not special about New York City, but I hear you on the lifestyle pain points. They're real.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I love New York, and I always will. That won't change. I was there for 21 years. I became an adult there.
0: So in the world of my dad is cooler than your dad, you win. Your dad, Errol DePlessis, owned a quarry where he trained scuba divers. Was that his Mm -hmm. full-time job? I mean, what's the story there?
1: My mother was a fine artist, and she did what she loved. And when I was young, she was doing fine art, and my father was working for the government and hated it. They would get in arguments about it because he just felt like it wasn't fair for her to be able to pursue her dreams and he had to have this government job. So one day he just quit, he couldn't do it anymore and he became a swim coach at a high school in Boston. I don't know if it's still around, it was called Umana High School. And from there he was able to begin his career in aquatics. So he did that for a few years and then he became the assistant aquatics director at UMass, University of Massachusetts. and then. He did that for several years, became certified as a scuba diver and an instructor. So he started instructing people on how to become divers. And then he just ended up getting all these certifications to the point where he could certify instructors to become instructors, you know, that kind of thing. From there, he became a university professor, the director of aquatics at Hampton University, worked there for 20 years. And then during that time, I think that toward the Last four years of his tenure at Hampton University, a buddy of his said, hey, you know, you want to come diving with me? There's this quarry and it's pretty cool. And he was like, sure. And at that point it was just, it wasn't used. It was like, you know, it wasn't being used for anything. Originally it was, they were digging for limestone and they hit an underwater spring. It filled up and became just this quarry that just sat there, no one used it, but the water was so clear that sometimes divers would sneak in there and go diving. And my father went and right away, he said, you know, this could be a business. This is amazing. He didn't have a background in business and I'm not going to say that he was the best businessman. but his journey was to turn the quarry into a dive destination and he did just that. He had government contracts. They filmed a few movies there. They trained divers at Lake Rawlings and also people would bring their families. It was a swimming destination and a recreational diving spot. So he did that for God, you know, another 20 years. He had Lake Rawlings and he loved every minute of it, but during his time at Hampton University, he certified, I don't have the statistics on this, but I can't find anyone that could argue the fact that I think my father certified more black divers than anyone in the United States. Just because being a university professor, every semester he's certifying 20, 30 divers. Have you dived there? Yeah, 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 I did. It was really fucking cold. The water, it had a thermocline. So after 15 feet, it got really cold, man. How deep was it? 60 feet at the deepest. And they sunk a few boats. They made some artificial reefs. They sunk a car, a school bus. So, you know, divers could go there and kind of play around with the things that were at the bottom of the lake. So it was pretty cool. All of his grandchildren, their first kind of foray into diving was at lake Rollins. you know he'd put a tank on them and teach them the basics so it was pretty awesome
0: we, we that sounds there. incredible yeah we'll be right back print is dead is made possible with the support of mag
1: culture read our online journal listen to our podcast and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive all available at
0: magculture.com You give credit to your mom for guiding you into this career. She was an artist herself. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about Laurel?
1: My mother was a fine artist. And in high school, I'll be honest, I was a, I don't want to say a fuck up, you know, but I just, like, (laughs) what is the term if you don't give a shit? You know, I wasn't getting in trouble really, but I just didn't really, school wasn't my thing at all. I just didn't have a lot of confidence in what I was doing. And years later, I got diagnosed with ADD probably like half the creatives out there in the world, but it's not a joke, I mean, I I really did. And there was really no term for that. Schools didn't know how to deal with kids that had attention deficit disorder. So they would always say, oh, you know, the report was always, Rem needs to focus, you know? (laughs) And the only time I didn't get that feedback was in art class. And I think that because in elementary school in my early education years, not knowing that I had ADD, it did fuck with my confidence in terms of school. And I didn't try as hard. You know, I just stopped trying, which is unfortunate, but it's the truth. And so when my mother came to me and said, Hey, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I have no idea. I told her I wanted to go to New York and model <laughs> or join the Marines. And the reason why I said modeling was because I was in class my junior year in this government class. And this woman came in to visit. She was on Broadway, some New York Broadway woman. I think she was the director or producer, and she was good friends with my government teacher. And she was like, hey, you in the back, back there, the quiet one. <laughs> and she was talking to me and she said, you should come to New York and model. And I was like, whoa, yeah, that's my plan, that's what I'm going to do. So I told my mother, that. I was, she was like, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I think I'm going to go to New York and model. And She said, well, the hell you are. And then I said, okay, well, I'll probably join the Marines then. And she said, no, you're, you're not doing that either. So then we started going through choices. Choices meaning you have no choice but to go to college. But then choices around, what are you going to major in? And she threw out fine art and I said, I don't want to do that just because I saw the struggles that she went through as a fine artist. And we talked about architecture and we had a friend and family that was an architect and he told me about the projects he worked on and it wasn't anything what I thought it would be. you know. He's like, when you first start out, you're an apprentice and you're designing a bathroom for the first five years. So I definitely didn't want to do that. And then she said, well, what about commercial art? And I said, what's that? And of course she was referring to graphic design. And the minute she started talking about that, you can design magazines, you can work for an ad agency, you can do movie titling. I was blown away. I was like, really? People do that? For there, There's actually a job for that? So immediately I was like, yeah, that's what I want to study. I want to do that. So it was almost like that day when she described it, it's like the skies opened up, sun started beaming. It really did because for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a real direction.
3: Did you have any favorite magazines at that time?
1: When I was in high school? No, not really. Because I didn't really understand design, I didn't really look at magazines in that way. I paid attention to the photography a little more. But in terms of the design of magazines, I guess if I saw something cool, I would appreciate it. But I didn't aspire in high school to become a magazine designer. It was more around just studying graphic design and then figuring it out. I really didn't develop a love for magazines until... Well, indirectly, I probably did early on because my parents had probably way too many subscriptions than they needed to for magazines. So I did grow up with a lot of magazines laying around. But in terms of an appreciation around the design of magazines, it wasn't until I think graduate school where Vibe magazine was launched, I think in 1993 with Richard Baker and Gary And they did some beautiful work and George Pitts, it was just like this amazing stuff. So that when I saw that magazine with that Dan Winters, Wesley Snipes cover where he's covered in mud, like the mud is cracking on his face, that issue really introduced me to magazines. So then all of a sudden I was like, okay, well, how do I learn more? Found out about SPD and started buying those books and quickly fell in love with it. But also when I was in grad school, I needed to get a job. I started running out of money and teaching swim lessons at the Y was no longer cutting it. So I found a job listing for a magazine art director. I had put my book out there to a lot of design firms, a lot of, oh yeah, this is great, but you don't have enough experience. Finally, I interviewed for a job, a magazine, a a small magazine. It was a trade magazine called Market Watch. That was my first design job, and it just happened to be in magazines.
0: Backing up, so you went to Hampton for undergrad Mm -hmm. in HBCU on the Chesapeake Bay. Mm Mm-hmm. You said you were one of four or so graduates. I went to a much bigger university. It was one of three or four graduates in design myself. What was it like studying design there?
1: Looking back on it, there were not a lot of resources, but when I first started at Hampton in my freshman year, we were learning paste-ups and I was just starting to get the hang of that. And then all of a sudden this Mac showed up and I was like, oh my God, what is this Apple thing? But I quickly became fond of it and realized, wow, this is a huge shortcut to all the things I I learned last semester. So we had one computer. That was our computer lab, and I would always sign up for it at the end of the last sign-up, which was usually around ten o'clock at night, because then I could. No one would come and disturb me. There were like four or five design majors, and I remember a lot of people, friends, saying to me, "Hey, you know, what the hell are you going to do when you graduate?" Because they just looked at me as an art major, and to them, it was that basic kind of thinking of starving artist. What are you doing? Why would you ever major in this thing? And can't say that didn't. Helped my confidence, but at least I was in college studying something that I loved. But it was just because it was a small town. There weren't a lot of designers around. It wasn't until my junior year where this woman came. She was this black woman from DC who was an art director at Time Life Books. And she gave a presentation on her work and what she did. She was literally the first graphic designer I ever met in my life. And so she really got me excited because now all of a sudden this thing became real. Here's a woman talking about the project she's working on, explaining what she does on a day-to-day. And it was pretty amazing. But also on the fine arts side, Hampton University has a really rich history in African-American art. And while I was there, John Biggers, the artist, he's no longer with us, but he's a really well-respected black artist. He was painting the murals that uh, we have these in the library at Hampton University. They built a new library and he was the artist that was commissioned to paint. There were these huge panels. So he did three murals within the library and you could see them from the outside because the architecture in the front of the library was all glass. So I spent a lot of time with him just learning about his level of thinking, how he thought and how he approached painting. He taught me about Aaron Douglas, the Harlem Renaissance artist who was really also a trained graphic or yeah, I believe he was a trained graphic designer as well. The education didn't always come in the classroom, but it was there and it certainly built my foundation and love for design. And the chair of the department, Sharon Beecham, you know, she did everything she could with the limited resources that she had. It was pretty
3: great. What did you learn from your mom? I'm curious. Did you learn some technical skills from her? Did you arrive at art school knowing how to paint or draw? My mother
1: also designed a few logos as well. I learned later that she actually studied design at Pratt for a semester or two. So she would design logos for friends and ask me my opinion on them and that kind of stuff. And usually it was all hand done. So I just think indirectly, she gave me this gift of creativity and creative thinking and decision-making just by watching her. But in terms of the technical aspects of design, especially she was terrified of computers, that was all on me. She didn't really ask too much about the technical part of my job. It was always just, my son works for GQ Magazine, that kind of thing.
0: (laughs) You just found out that your son is going to follow in your footsteps and go to Hampton. How does that feel?
1: It feels great. It feels great. He doesn't want to study design. He couldn't study design actually at Hampton because they got rid of the program, unfortunately. But he's really into music. He composes music. So they do have a good music program at Hampton University. So he ultimately wants to score films. That's his goal. I didn't put pressure on him. I mean, he was accepted to some other schools. He had a choice. He even had a choice to go to a school here in California. But Going back to what I said about the lack of diversity here, he loved the idea of having an experience where he's not the only one.
0: Well, congratulations. That's awesome.
1: Thank you. So
0: by my calculation, in your 10 years working at the New York Times Magazine at 52 issues per year times 10 years, you produce more than 500 issues, which is the equivalent of 43 years at a monthly magazine. <laughs> yeah. And that's not counting T and other projects from that time. That's mm-hmm. a lot of fucking magazines.
1: <laughs> That's a lot of magazines. It is. Yep.
0: How do you look back on your 43 years at the Times? <laughs> uh, I can imagine a lot of pride and joy, but was there a personal cost? Anything you do over? How do you feel about your 43 years at the Times? first? I mean, you had a lot of accomplishments. You really mm-hmm. made a name for yourself there.
1: Thank you. I loved every second of it. It was amazing. Looking back on things, the only thing that I would change is, and you don't learn this until you you mature and you become, I guess maturity is really the best way to put it. I didn't realize then what I realize now is in terms of the platform that I have as a creative and as a black creative, I think in general, just in the magazine world, I wish that I had the confidence in the platform to advocate more for a diversity in storytelling and the kind of stories that we were publishing, not just at the Times, but just in general. And then also pushing for more representation on the editorial side, you know, more black editors, more black editors in senior positions. The New York Times was definitely the most diverse staff I ever worked at, but at GQ, there were no black editors at all, any senior editors. And you know, I did argue for it because I would say, hey, look, we know, this staff, you know, our team does not represent the reader at all. There were a lot of women readers at GQ and all the editors knew that, but we didn't have a lot of female editors. Of course, black folks like to, you know, we like to put it on fashion wise. You know, black men are fashionable, let's just say it. And to not have one black fashion editor at GQ magazine, I mean, I wish I'd questioned that more. But I was twenty seven at the time and and I was busy. But that's the only thing that I would go back and do.
3: So wait, so you were twenty seven then, but so you were 25, you worked at Blaze Magazine for, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. how long.
1: I was there for like 10 months, 11 months.
3: Yeah. What was that like? Because that title had such a famous launch and it flamed out pretty quickly, but it was an exciting magazine. What was that like working there for 10 months?
1: Flamed out pretty quickly. No no pun intended with Blaze. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, when I got there, I was hired as the design director. It was the first job I ever had as the design lead. Before that, I was at Men's Journal. I was young, I really was, but I just felt like at the time I wasn't getting the jobs at the magazines I necessarily wanted to work for. And I just felt, or I didn't have the voice that I knew I, in terms of design, I wasn't producing the work that I knew I could produce, let's put it that way. So in my opinion, my thinking back then, if I wanna put out the work that I believe in, then I have to be the one leading it. So I was really excited to take that job at Blaze. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. I would have stayed longer than 10 months, but I got a call from Condé Nast and Anne Haggerty, she worked in human resources. When she met me and she saw my portfolio, she promised me that, uh, hey, I'm going to call you one day for one of these magazines, you better be ready. Two years later, she called me and said, hey, GQ needs an art director because there was a design director there at the time. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Who was that? It was George Moskalakis. George was there for maybe four or five years. He hired me through Anne's recommendation. And then George, he maybe stayed maybe nine months while I was there. And then he wanted to move on to something else. And Art Cooper, the late great Art Cooper said, hey, look, do you feel like you're ready to lead this magazine? And I said, absolutely. I wouldn't have told him otherwise. (laughs) I was pretty young, but I just believe that this opportunity may never come again. So you better be ready. And the frustrating thing at GQ was, it was a huge title. My mother was very proud of it. She called it Gentleman's Quarterly. But the reality was, Art Cooper, as we know now, was under tremendous pressure at GQ. He was holding on for dear life. He had been there for 20 years. And I just wasn't able to do the work that I really strived to do. You know, I knew it could be so much more. And I didn't have the full trust of Art at the time. And to be honest, I was still developing as a magazine designer as well, trying to find my voice. But going to Spin Magazine after GQ was intentional because Sia Michael was hired as the editor in chief, first female editor of a music magazine, a rock magazine. I thought that was pretty cool. And after meeting her, I knew she would allow me to kind of explore, I guess, my goals in design and do work that allowed me and my team to push the envelope. And I feel like at Spin Magazine, it was just that. I took a salary cut, pretty big one. And in terms of prestige, my mother was like, what the fuck is Spin Magazine? But it was the best career move I ever made because everything that I wanted to do creatively, Saya gave me the freedom and the autonomy to do that. And that's what got me to the New York Times. Janet Frolick liked what we were doing at Spin Magazine and called me and said, hey, do you want to interview this gig at the New York Times?
0: Your mom would not have wanted to know that Spin was launched by the Gucci-owned family.
1: No, no. When I went to Blaze Magazine, she was like, why would you do that? Why would you leave Men's Journal? My father, when I went to, I think, Spin Magazine, the only thing he said was, well, you know, just that music world, is there's a lot of coke in that world and you just don't start sniffing coke. And I'm like, yeah, dad, all right, well, at this point in my life, I'm good. I'm not going to throw it all away by all of a sudden becoming a coke hit. And then of course, when I went to the New York Times, that was, my mother was proud of me again because that title meant a lot to her for many reasons. But also her dad, her father was, my grandfather was a train conductor, but he read the Times every day. That was his thing. In the morning, he would read it from front to back. So when I got the gig there, she was really proud of that. We'll be right back.
0: Print is Dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Who are your influences and heroes from your magazine career? Your mentors and influences.
1: I would say influences definitely Richard and Gary from those days at Vibe. George Pitts was a mentor to me. I would say, obviously, Fred Woodward did some amazing work. You, Patrick, I love the work that you did at Fast Company. That was, that was awesome. I would pick that up every single time. I was excited about getting that in the mail. I mean, the usual suspects. And then outside of the magazine world, I would just look at a lot of what designers were doing. I loved Robert Brownjock and his philosophy. Paula Shear was a huge influence on me for multiple reasons. Michael Beirut, the unfortunate thing is at the time, there weren't a lot of black heroes in, in design, but there were a few. So, Michelle Washington, Lance Pettiford, I, I, I love that. the work that he was doing at BT Weekly. There were a few. I loved what David Amario did at, at Men's Journal, him and Tom Brown before I got there. The reason why I went to Men's Journal was because of the work they were doing, but that quickly changed. They rebranded the magazine itself. So I had a lot. I had a lot of people that I really looked up to. I looked up to Janet Frolick, obviously, and Kathy Ryan so it was unreal when I actually got to work with them. It was kind of a dream fulfilled. It's funny
0: you mentioned Pentagram. You seem like a natural fit for Pentagram. Mm -hmm. Did they ever approach you?
1: No, no, they didn't. I'm friends with Paula and Luke. There were times where I kind of felt like they were waiting for me to show interest in doing that. And Paula would certainly recommend me for some really great jobs. But I'm glad they didn't because I just feel like I'd be a terrible entrepreneur. And the reason why I say that is because I don't like to be removed from the work and in a way that sometimes when you're running your business, you have to go out and get new business. You're not always able to still get your hands dirty in the workspace.
0: That is one thing I've heard from some Pentagram partners is just that part of having to churn new work in there is just so, there's so much pressure.
1: Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of pressure. You know, they do great work. I mean, they succeed at it, but being an entrepreneur is not for me. And if it was, I don't know if they would have hired me to be a partner, but I certainly would have, if I had that spirit of doing that, it would have been a dream gig, you know, really would have, but I just, maybe they sensed that in me. I don't know. Or maybe I was never even (laughs) considered, I can't answer that, but I love the work that they do. And as much pressure as those folks are under, they still churn out great work for years. Who's the most famous person you met in your magazine career? Oh, man, that's subjective because I met a lot of famous people.
0: Any heroes?
1: Oh Man, I worked with Kobe Bryant two times, met Obama, which was amazing, Oprah Winfrey, George Clooney. We worked with George Clooney at the New York Times so much that he knew my name because he was always one of the great performers because he's such yeah. a brilliant actor. Brad Pitt was a big name. Actually, really, him and George Clooney are, and Obama are some of the most down-to-earth, nicest people I've ever met. When Brad Pitt walked into the studio, literally after five minutes, you forget that it's Brad Pitt because he's just such a cool guy and he's just he just felt very surprisingly normal. And George Clooney as well. You can sense the bullshit when someone's just trying to fit in and then when someone's too, truly genuine. Those guys were really cool to work with. But there were a lot. There were a lot. Great performers. We would usually have about, I think, 10 actors and actresses or just actors. And it's every year we would do that. So 10 times 10, that's like a hundred of some of the biggest names in Hollywood right there. Yeah. so It was pretty incredible.
3: We've talked about a little bit of the notion of like designing. When you start with a print piece, are you already thinking about the digital outputs? So you Mm -hmm. have to have some digital life to the print piece. Are you thinking about that at the beginning? And are those digital outputs, whatever they might be, is that an extension design-wise from the print piece or is it an entirely independent creative concept? And this would be what the New York Times Magazine.
1: Well, it was frustrating to be honest with you because not that I'm a control freak. I mean, I guess we all are to a certain degree if we wanna put out good work, but I had so much control over the printed part of the magazine that was under my domain and my team's domain. And then you had the interactive part, which was not really my domain. It was almost like, and look, they, I mean, some of the best interactive people in the world that work at the New York Times, we all know that, but they didn't always have the bandwidth to do what I wanted them to do. Or sometimes I would want them to do something that they didn't do, but then they would turn around and do something much better than I thought, whatever my idea was. So it was a good relationship, but It didn't always, the look of an article that we didn't print didn't always replicate online just because back then, a lack of understanding from my part, to be honest, but also the interactive team at the New York Times, they do a lot of work and myself and my team's ambitions around what the article should look like digitally, they weren't always able to take it on.
3: You have to pass the torch because you want to bring the same vibrancy that lives in print that we all know and love and you Mm. want to execute that digitally. And at a certain point, it sounds like you do have to pass the torch and lead those creative decisions to another team.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then as things started to develop, because I left in 2014, so you, know, you have to remember these conversations I'm having are 2010 through 2012 with the interactive team. We just didn't have the same capabilities that they have now. So I can't speak for Gail. She's doing amazing work, both on Gail Bickler on the print side and the digital side. But I would imagine that the collaboration looks a lot different now than it did back then. Because back then, I think both sides of the table were trying to figure out how to do complicated things. You just didn't have the same platform.
0: You talked about this at the New York Times. You co-produced this Emmy award-winning video series for the Times with George Clooney, Viola Davis, Brad Pitt. Do you see doing more of that type of work in your future?
1: You know, It's tricky because I'm listed as a producer, but it was really from me, a creative contribution, but they have all of these rules. So I can't remember why I couldn't be listed as a creative, but listed as a producer. At Apple, I do get to work on a lot of different projects that are really varied. So my creative cup is full there. In terms of going off and producing my own version of that, no, I mean, I think Scott did a great job with that, but my aspirations after Apple are more around going back and teaching. I want to bring a lot more black creatives into the world of design, like my mother did for me. I would just want to educate at a young age the possibilities of what it looks like as a design career and all the opportunities. That's my goal after corporate America, for sure.
0: Well, you sort of stole one of my questions because that's actually, Nicole had a great question, but if Apple disappeared tomorrow, what would you want to do for work? What would fulfill you?
1: Definitely being a fine artist. I've started doing some side work on the weekends, drawing and doing some collages, and I love doing it. It's very therapeutic. So, if money wasn't an issue, I'd be on my yacht doing artwork.
3: <laughs> I vote for the teaching. I think a lot of students still don't know that there are design opportunities that it's I even a job. You know, I, I think know. that's no. still okay.
1: Yeah, no, that would certainly be factored into the. The students would be on my yacht with me. And, I'll just have a great time. But yeah, that will always be a goal and obviously it has nothing to do with money. It's just more around education.
0: What career advice would you give young Rem coming out of college today?
1: The career advice I would give young Rem coming out of college is definitely go to graduate school to learn more and feel like what it means to be a creative in New York. So you're doing the right thing there. and. The other piece of advice I would give is to stop worrying, you know, like it, everything's going to work out, you're on the right path, you know, you got accepted into graduate school, certainly you have enough talent in this business to get a job and just relax a little bit. Everything, everything's going to be fine.
0: You can keep up with Rem by following him on Instagram at Duplessis. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co slash interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co slash shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes.
2: Print is Dead Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co support for more information.
0: Consider switching to digital with ReadyMag, the design tool that helps create websites without coding. ReadyMag's WYSIWYG attitude gives you full control over the result. Just drag whatever you want on the page, customize and hit publish. Or take more time to fine tune your project with advanced typography, complex animations, integrated analytics, draggable objects, shadows, custom cursors, the possibilities are endless. The first 50 new users to take promo code Dead. Get a 50% discount to ReadyMag's studio plan. Learn more at ReadyMag.com.